0: I want us to read Matthew 12, starting in verse 30 and following. Jesus says these words, "'Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven.'" And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good the evil person out of the evil treasure his evil treasure brings forth evil i tell you on the day of judgment people will give an account for every careless word they speak for the words uh, for your words will you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned this is the word of god for the people of god thanks be to god thank you you may be seated <laughs> I believe that this text is very important for us today and ties in well with what we've been celebrating already this morning and celebrating new life and baptism and all that that means for us. You know, I was thinking this week uh, about this idea of spirituality. Uh, There was a YouGov poll that came out in December of last year, so just a few months ago, and that poll had some interesting stats uh, for example, it found that 90% of people, 9 out of 10 people, held at least one New Age spirituality belief. At least one. 90%. That same study found that 50% of the people who were surveyed held at least five New Age spiritual beliefs. I'm not talking about Christian spiritual beliefs. I'm talking about New Age spiritual beliefs. The interesting thing was is that 38% of the people in the survey said that religion was very important to them where 22% in the survey said that religion was not at all important to them. But even though you have these numbers where it's important or not important, you also have 9 out of 10 people holding at least one New Age spiritual belief and 50% holding at least 5, which tells me there's a whole lot of confusion out there. And one of the things we need to understand is that there's a difference between spirituality and the objective reality of Jesus. Jesus. We live in a world today that likes to do this subjective, individualized spirituality where I pick and choose what I believe and I can take from a variety of places and a variety of sources. But there's a difference between that and the reality of who Jesus is. And one of the things we have to understand as Christians is that spiritual activity or spirituality that is not sourced in the Holy Spirit and therefore points us directly to who Jesus is. Any spirituality that is not sourced in the Holy Spirit and point us to who Jesus is, is what the Bible calls demonic. That's strong language. But we see it over and over throughout Scripture, and it's real. Which means when it comes to our spirituality, the question is, who is Jesus to us? Who do we say he is? That's the question. Now, if you've been reading along with us through our Life Along the Way journey, you'll know that we've been reading some interesting text this week. And in Matthew 12, one of the things that we're seeing is that Jesus is going around, and as he's doing what the Messiah does, he is fulfilling scripture that was prophesied about him centuries and centuries before in the Old Testament. If you go to Matthew chapter 12, and you back up to, say, verse 9, verses 9 through 14, you see that Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. And then immediately after that, after he does that healing, the Pharisees start plotting to kill him. And then we see in verse 15, it says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. Notice that Jesus is going around healing people, but he tells them, you know, don't tell people who did it. Don't tell people about me. Not yet. Verse 17 says, "This was to fulfill what was sp- uh, spoken by the prophet Isaiah." And then we see the quotation from Isaiah in there in verses 18 through 21, "Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets." A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. When Isaiah spoke those words so long ago, it was speaking about the Messiah who would come, and he would do so many things, bringing the victory that only the Messiah could bring, but also he was not going to announce it and show it off like others would. Now, immediately following this, we're seeing that Jesus is fulfilling all of these prophecies, and we see it again in the next verse. But what Jesus is doing at this point is he is revealing his Messiahship. He is showing people how that he was the one that was promised so long ago. And we see in verse 22, which begins our context for the text we just read. Verse 22, it says, right after this prophecy about Isaiah, it says, Then... A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. (laughs) Notice Matthew just says, he healed him. No details, no nothing, just he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And again, right here we see that Jesus is going about doing what the Messiah does. Jesus is the one sent from the Father, and in his incarnation, he has come to bring the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven, and he's going around healing people, but this is not random. This has been talked about. This is what the Messiah would do. Flip over to Isaiah 35 for just a second. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 starts out with this phrase, you know, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad at the end of verse 2 it says they will see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God and then in Isaiah 35 verse 3 Isaiah says strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees say to those who have an anxious heart be strong fear not Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Right there, you hear the messianic language that there is one who is going to come, and he is going to be the one who will save you. But how will we know that he has come? How will we know the Messiah has come? Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah says these are the signs that will accompany the Messiah when he shows up on the scene. And so what we see in verse 22 is that the Messiah has come once again. Another person has been brought to him. Jesus heals him because he is the Messiah on the move. And he is revealing himself and revealing who he is at this point. Now, when Jesus is on the move, whether it's in the text or whether it's in my life and your life, when Jesus is on the move doing what the Messiah does... Normally, there are two different reactions that take place, and that's what we see in the text. Notice that Jesus heals this man, and we don't know who brought this demon-oppressed man to Jesus on this day. Could have been the Pharisees wanting to test Jesus because of what just happened with a man with a withered hand. We don't know. But Jesus heals this man, and you get two different reactions. Verse 23, you get the first reaction. It says, And all the people were amazed. This is all the common people who were were there, who saw Jesus heal him. It says, they were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Can this be the one that was prophesied about long ago? Can this be the one that Isaiah was talking about? Can this be the Messiah? That's the right question to be asking. But verse 24, we see a different response. Verse 24, the Pharisees see this, and it's as if they have an emotional reaction. They react real quick. It says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now the crowd who sees this miracle take place and they start asking the question, can this be the son of David? Can this be the one who's going to sit on David's throne? That's the right question to ask. The Pharisees making a quick emotional judgment. No, no, no. He's in league with Satan. That's the wrong answer to give. And notice they gave it quick. Now you may say, what is all this about Beelzebul or Beelzebulb if some of your translations say? We first see this name, it first appears in 2 Kings chapter 1 verses 2 and following. And it's actually a compound word, Beelzebulb is Baal or Baal as we would call it, B-A-A-L, the Canaanite god Baal. And Beelzebulb or Zebul is a location. And Zabul means a high place, an exalted place. And a lot of times you see Baal's name tagged with another location saying that's where the people would say that's where Baal dwells or lives. Now, as that word progressed throughout the centuries, some of you know that uh, it's translated sometimes Lord of the Flies. The Hebrews would use it as kind of a slang for Lord of the Dung. You know what Dung is, Right. Right? But in the first century world, they would also use it as a kind of uh, to put people down or to say, you're in league with Satan, you're in league with Beelzebub, you're in league with Beelzebub, uh, you're in league with the prince of demons. And it was a very derogatory statement. And what they're doing is they're tying what Jesus is doing, tying the Messiah's work at this point, tying it to Satan. And they say, it's by him, it's by Beelzebub, it's by demons you cast out demons. Now, at this point, Jesus is hearing this play out. And he's looking at the Pharisees and he's thinking, boys, that doesn't even make sense. And what Jesus does is he uses reason and logic to prove that what they're saying does not make sense. And so many times we see this with Jesus. We see him using reason and logic to explain the supernatural activity that's happening around them. So they say he's in league with the devil Verse 25 says, Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? What Jesus does is he looks at the Pharisees in this moment and he says, guys, your argument that I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan actually makes no sense at all. Why would he hurt himself in that way? Why would he do that? And again, Jesus is using reason and logic in this moment. They have this emotional reaction to Jesus because they have to say that his work is the work of Satan because if it's not the work of Satan, then it is the work of God, which means this could be the Messiah of God. And they do not want to accept that at all. And then Jesus says to them in verse 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, your sons there refers to these Pharisees' spiritual children. their spiritual sons in the faith. their disciples. And you have to remember that exorcisms were, it was a big business in the first century. We even see it in the book of Acts with the sons of Sceva. You see that they would go out, there were these itinerant rabbis, that would go from town to town and they would find people who were supposedly demon-possessed and their job was to cast them out, of course, for a fee, right? It was a big business. And now Jesus is looking at them and he says, you send people out all the time to cast out demons. Whose power are they using? Whose power are they using? He says, they will be your judges, meaning this is going to turn around on you. They're going to come asking some questions, about your authority and about the power that they have that you say they have. But in verse 28, Jesus says, But if it is, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That phrase come upon you means it's come in your midst now. Jesus looks at him and he says, Your argument does not make sense. You do know that every human argument cannot stand before the Almighty. You do know that, right? I know sometimes we think we're smarter than God, but it doesn't work. And Jesus says, if, if God has sent me, and if this is the work of the Spirit of God in my life, then that means the kingdom has come. You have to remember that everybody in this text right now, there are no atheists here. Everybody believes in God. Everybody believes in Satan. The question was, where is God? What is God up to? Is this man called Jesus from Nazareth, does he have anything to do with God? And Jesus says, if it's not of Satan, then maybe the kingdom is coming. And so he gives him a parable in verse 29. Notice the parable. Jesus says, let me put it this way. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And notice his tagline here. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me... Scatters. Short little parable Jesus gives here. The strong man is Satan. The house is the world that we live in. And we see this theme throughout Scripture. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, this famous chapter about being saved by grace. We have to remember how it starts. Because Paul is illustrating what Jesus has done. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you, meaning you in the church, were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following, what you were doing, was following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, meaning in this world, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in its passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then verse 4, but God. But God has done something. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. In many ways, that's a theological understanding of what the parable that Jesus is giving here because the strong man that Jesus is referring to is Satan himself. The house is this world, but the stronger man, which is the point that Jesus is making, the one who has the power to bind the strong man, the one who has the power to bind Satan, is Jesus himself. And then he looks at him in verse 30 and he says, are you with me? Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever's with me gathers We go in and we're going to plunder the world and we're going to see souls saved from all over the planet, Jesus says. And so he looks at them and he says, are you with me? And they're like, I don't know. So he says, I need to be very clear with you. There's one thing that cannot be forgiven. That's what he says next. Therefore, verse 31, therefore, meaning he's setting the context because of what he just said, there's a therefore, you all know the phrase, right? Anytime you read the word therefore, you need to know what it's therefore. there for. So the context goes back to verse 22. Right now, he's bringing it to this concluding point. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy or against the spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus is talking about this. He doesn't just bring it up at random. He's talking about it because it's exactly what the Pharisees are doing in verse 24. Whenever they make this emotional quick judgment, oh, he's in league with the devil, Jesus is like, you better be careful. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this rejection with slander. Rejection was slander. Now we have to understand that we as Christians, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 4.30. But we do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The kind of blaspheme, rejection that Jesus is talking about here is rejecting, a lifetime of rejecting, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. It was the Father who sent the Son. It was the Son who sent the Spirit. It's the Spirit who points us to the Son. It's the Son who makes a way for us to go to the Father. And so the primary work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us, is to convict the world of sin, to point us to who our Savior is. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is the kingdom of God may just be coming in your midst, and the Spirit of God may just be working in and through me, the Messiah, but if you reject that power and you do that for the rest of your life, that sin cannot be forgiven. God can forgive anything and everything except your lifetime rejection of who the Son is. And we only know that by the work of the Spirit in our life. So yes, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, but no, if you are a Christian, you cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You did not accidentally say a sentence or a phrase or make fun of the Holy Spirit at some point when you were 12 years old and it's gonna send you to hell. That's not how it works. In fact, if you're sitting here worried whether or not you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, then guess what? You haven't. You haven't. But to live your life with an ongoing rejection of the Spirit's work in your life, pointing you to the Messiah, that is what it means to blaspheme the Spirit. And that is exactly what the Pharisees are doing in this moment. And Jesus is warning them. And so he looks at them in verse 33 and he says this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Notice the word make Jesus is looking at the Pharisees, and he says, you have a choice. You're going to make the tree good, therefore its fruit is going to be good, or you're going to make the tree bad, and its fruit is going to be bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. And then he says, you brood of vipers. It's like saying, you you offspring of snakes. Remember snakes in the Bible? (laughs) Something in the beginning? He says, how can you speak... Good when you are evil, it's a rhetorical question because you can't. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of the good treasure brings forth good, the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What Jesus is doing is he's revealing who he is, he's revealing the power that he has. He is the stronger man who is going to plunder Satan's house in this world. But he's looking at the Pharisees who are rejecting him, and what he's reminding them of is that your words reveal your heart, and your heart reveals your treasure. Jesus said something about that, right? Treasure, heart, where it is. Your words reveal your heart, your affections, and your heart and your affections, they reveal your treasure, your allegiance in life, Jesus tells them. And notice he's talking about fruit, because fruit naturally comes from its source, right? Right? It's either good or it's bad. And right here, Jesus is saying there is no neutrality at all. There's not like we, we love gray, right? Jesus says, no, no, no. The fruit, it's either good fruit or it's bad fruit. The question is, what's the fruit? And the fruit that he is talking about is what do you say about who he is? That's what he's asking the Pharisees about. What do you say about who I am? Am I the Messiah? Has the kingdom of God come in your midst or has it not? And that's the challenge that Jesus is putting in front of them and saying, guys, you can't be neutral on this. It's either a good tree with good fruit or it's a bad tree with bad fruit. You're going to have good treasure or you're going to have bad treasure. And it's all connected. Your words reveal your heart. Your heart reveals your treasure, your allegiance in life. And then Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees who just made this quick, emotional, careless judgment about who he was. And he's telling them, he's warning them, be careful. Because those unspoken assumptions and then the words you say about who Jesus is that you have not properly thought through, that can lead you down the wrong path and into a lifetime of rejecting Jesus and he's trying to get them to slow down and think about what they're saying. Because your mouth and your heart, there is a connection there that is so vital and important. Paul would pick up on this theme in Romans 10. If you go to Romans 10, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10. Paul picks up on this theme, this connection that Jesus has been teaching about between the connection between your mouth, what you say, and what's going on on the inside of your heart you know cuz so many times we say things like well people really don't know me no they actually do and all they have to do is listen to you paul says this in romans 10 9 and 10 he says if if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved no question For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice there's an internal, there's a private and a public component to salvation in our relationship with God here, right? Heart and confess. And Jesus here is talking to these disciples. He's talking to this crowd, but he's looking directly at the Pharisees, and he's saying, you better be careful because you're revealing who you really are. And if you want to know who you really are, who your true self is, Jesus says, all you have to do is listen to yourself and you'll know your true self. Because what you say reveals who you are. And what you say about Jesus reveals your allegiance to Jesus. And that is the fruit that he is looking for in this passage. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? Because the truth is you cannot Hide what's in your heart. It will come out of your mouth. It may take one of those hard moments in life where the pressure is on. Yes. But it will come out, what is truly in there. And Jesus' invitation to the Pharisees on this day, who are making these quick judgments and just trying to write him off without slowing down and thinking through who this could be standing in front of them, doing all of these miracles, What he puts before them today is the same thing that he put before his disciples later on. When he asked them the question, you know, who do people say that I am? But then he looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? And as Jesus is going around revealing who he is as the Messiah, every person he comes in contact with, whether it's healing or not, whether it's teaching or not, that is the question. And that is the question that is ever before us who is he? Who is he? He's going around fulfilling scripture. He's creating curiosity. He's also creating controversy. The crowds are amazed. Soft hearts, curious hearts. The Pharisees, oh, this is not good. Hard hearts. And the question he puts before them is, who am I to you? Are you with me or not? And that is our question today. And guess what? When you wake up tomorrow, guess what your question is going to be? Are you with him or not? And the next day, when you wake up, the question is gonna be, are you with him or not? It's as if he ever lays it before us. He says, you get to choose. You can reject me. You can reject the work the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, always pointing you toward me. It's called blasphemy, and I will not override that. I can't forgive it. I have to respect it. I have to respect your rejection. Or you can see me for who I am. You can make the tree good. And that good fruit of confession of who Jesus is can come from your lips. And my prayer is that we would do that, not only in this moment, in a holy and sacred space, but every day. Amen? Amen. Father, would you help us? You've once again sent your Son by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in our midst For some of us, it creates this curiosity. For some of us, it's unnerving. It creates controversy. And sometimes the controversy is not with our peers, it's within our own heart. Lord, may we may, may we not make the mistake of being quick to speak and quick to judge you. But may we have a heart that carefully observes your work in the world. And may we come to that place where we too declare that you are Savior, you are Lord, you are the Messiah. And may that be what we treasure the most. Help us, Lord, do just that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said...